Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, everybody. Glad you could join us on American History Hit. I'm Don Wildman, your host. Listen to that sound and what do you hear? The pummeling vibrations of charging horse hooves on the ground, of course. Historically, the domestication and development of the working horse is commonly attributed to European and Asian cultures. In the Americas, the traditional story told has always been that only when Spanish explorers arrived in the New World bringing trained horses by ship were native peoples made aware of the horse and the plentiful ways they might use it. Only then would those indigenous tribes acquire the horse and begin to enjoy the great advances made possible by this new breed of animal. They were suddenly free to move over greater distances, hauling greater loads. They could hunt more effectively, more profitably. They could make new and much more lethal kinds of war. Recent archaeological studies of this horse-human history of North America have called that accepted theory into question. And with us today is an archaeozoologist at the center of it all. Dr. William Taylor is an assistant professor at the University of Colorado at Boulder and curator of archaeology at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. Dr. William Taylor, welcome to American History Hit. Hey, great to be here, Don, and thanks for having me. Before we define the more modern historical revision you're a part of, Let's outline in more detail the accepted wisdom that it challenges. It was always assumed that the horse arrived in North America with Hernan Cortez in about 1519, when he arrived in uh, Veracruz on the Gulf of Mexico. But actually, the horse was here first in North America millions of years prior, correct? Yeah, you know, the horse was a fundamentally American animal, at least in the deep time sense. I'm not a paleontologist, but paleontological research suggests to us that The horse and its closest relatives, donkeys, zebras, are members of that lineage that are still alive today, evolved kind of in the grasslands of the Great Plains and of North America. And there are horse-like creatures that can be traced back tens of millions of years. But the genus that we know of horses today really dates about to the time of what we call the Pleistocene, the beginning of the last ice age, about three million years ago. And that story, that chapter really began right here in the plains and in North America. What we know about the process from there is that those 
kind of American horses dispersed outwards from North America into other parts of the world, into South America, into Eurasia and Africa. And there probably was a fair amount of back and forth at times that North America and Eurasia were connected. But ultimately, the horses that were domesticated or entered into different relationships with people in Eurasia, they ultimately have, I think it's fair to say, an American pedigree. Wow. So they actually went in the reverse. The migrations would have happened over the Bering Strait and so forth. Is that the theory? You know, at various times, depending on what was going on with ice and sea level, North America and Eurasia have really been part of a single whole. And so those intervals, those periods were definitely periods of connection and integration and movement for not just horses, but a lot of other animals, including people, right? So that's part of the process that brought folks people, humans to the Americas too. Excellent. So this is part one of the fundamental misconception that we're addressing here in this program. I was certainly under the impression, and completely wrongly so, that the horse began in the steppes of Eurasia. I always assumed that because of the Mongolian horses and all that sort of thing, that that's all where it began. And then they came over along with humans. But it's actually in reverse is what paleontological evidence proves. Does it prove it? Yeah, I think that's fundamentally sort of accepted. How much would prehistoric man have encountered that version of the horse, that prehistoric horse back then? Is there any kind of record of that relationship aside from hunter and prey? The story of people and horses is in many ways the most ancient that we know about archaeologically. Probably the first animal that there's solid evidence of folks hunting, but also other kinds of more nuanced relationships like making tools out of horse remains, even potentially processing of horse hides. The sky's the limit on what you can infer there about the earliest human-horse relationships. Those go back half a million or maybe even a million years in certain areas of Eurasia. The same is true, actually, when we think about North America and our story of people and horses. In fact, the oldest archaeological evidence for human-animal interactions of any kind come from the Canadian Yukon, a series of sites called the Bluefish Caves. Those date to more than 20,000 years ago. And those contain evidence that the first folks that are in what is today North America, that we're still probably on the other side of this great ice sheet that would have separated the continents at that time, but those folks were already hunting horses. So we know that literally the first Americans there had that relationship with horses. Now, one of the challenges about the archaeological record is we don't have the blessing of being able to see every aspect of what those relationships were like. If we have some fortuitous circumstance like a cave painting or something like we might know from France or Spain, sometimes we get to see, okay, there was more going on here besides hunting. But archaeological data from across North America show us that after the first Americans made it to this part of the world, there was a really widespread relationship with people and horses. And the things that we know, the things that are preserved are hunting, butchery, obviously eating of horses, but also making tools, right? We can see that as well in the things that survive into the modern world from that period. They've also found evidence of ceremonial use burial sites having, I guess, skeletal remains of horses? Around the world, that's another one of those things where if folks were doing ceremonial things that involved burying something, we have an archaeological record of it. That in itself sort of limits our time period to the more recent chapters 
of history, but ceremonial relationships with horses in which horses were buried alongside people actually predates domestication, probably. We at least find horse remains in kind of funerary contexts in some parts of Eurasia that would predate the first evidence of domestication. It's always a challenge for uh, the uneducated of us, myself included, to manage these massive eons of understanding. But really, this discussion is about, as you point out just a moment ago, prehistoric, ancient, and more modern. We eventually get to the modern, which has its own massive revision, a little bit further along in this conversation. But for now, let me just review. So the horse is a plentiful species in the Americas for millennia. Undisputed fact. What's also undisputed is that the horse, once extinct, makes its return with the Europeans. What is intriguing enough for discussion is how that horse is newly distributed among the native peoples. I mean, that's where this whole argument shifts over, right? I think it's important to point out that our understanding of that story is actually changing from both ends. This project that came out this last couple of weeks is addressing it from one end, but the better that science gets in terms of the tools we have available to us, the more we're actually learning about that process of what was once considered a very simple sort of extinction model, right? What we're finding is that probably there's a lot more complexity to that early chapters of human horse story in North America too. You know, at one point folks thought 15, 20,000 years ago, horses were gone. Now we're seeing that in some areas we have indisputable archaeological evidence that pushes that date closer to 10,000 years. And more recently, innovations in sedimentary DNA-based research have actually shown that at the high northern latitudes in North America, some of those ancestral horse lineages were still alive, perhaps as late as 5,000 years ago. And so the story is constantly changing and it's getting more complex and varied and also sometimes extending that timeline in which there would have been overlap with people and horses perhaps a little bit further. Basically, science would be able to determine through DNA where horses came from, just like humans. Within limits, yeah. I mean, DNA allows us to study those ancestral connections. There's almost nothing you can do scientifically that is without room for interpretation or dispute. But yeah. <laughs> I'll be right back with more from Dr. William Taylor after this short break. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on my podcast, not just the Tudors from History Hit, I try to make sense of everything that baffled our early modern ancestors. Like, what do you do with your waist? If you put your dunghill up against your neighbour's wall, you're going to cause rising damp. Would Henry VIII ever consider executing his wife, the Queen of England, Anne Boleyn? I'm not even sure if the Boleyns took it seriously, because why would they have any reason to suspect Henry VIII would really get rid of his queen? And why do men grow beards? During puberty, the male body heats up and a smoke rises in the body, pushes out the hair in the face. So the beard is actually a form of excrement. In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Just as a sort of midpoint in this conversation, why does this matter? We're about to discuss something that's a really big historical revision. Why does this matter today? If Native societies here had an earlier relationship with the horse, what does that imply? How does this change our understanding of their societies? Horses are extraordinarily important to this part of the world. And I grew up in Montana. My family was kind of a horse family. My grandpa was a rancher and all that. Those connections, right, the cultural connections with the horse still mean a whole lot to people pretty much all across the Western part of this continent. Because of that, the story of the horse has always been a political one. Part of the process of colonizing and settling the Western U.S. was like the slaughter of indigenous horses because that was a source of power. 150 years ago, one of the biggest military defeats of U.S. cavalry has ever suffered was in the plains of eastern Montana, and there wasn't a counter battle that the U.S. military figured it out and defeated plains nations on horseback, right? They just continually lost, and it was only the process of removing that power base that settled the issue once and for all. So horses have always been embedded in that issue of power and control. For a lot of Native folks, it's a source of autonomy. There's spiritual connections. There's identity wrapped up in it. And it's the same for other folks out here too. There's threads that link people to horses in pretty much every culture that's out West. So it's important that we get the facts right because this stuff still affects how people live day to day in 2023. Along with all that, I think of it as a technology discussion almost. The horse is prior to the combustible engine, basically, or the steam engine, certainly. The horse is the central technology that makes society move a lot faster and be able to carry bigger loads. I mean, it's a really central part of industry. So if Native peoples had mastered this horse in their society, it infers a greater sophistication and complexity to that society. I think one of the issues here, of course, there's an aspect of horses that is this totally civilization and history-changing technology. From across the world in every context, that relationship with horses has been transformative in so many ways. But in the way that we've thought about it, it's almost been an incidental piece of the story here in which horses are part of the colonization story. And yeah, maybe Native folks got them for a little while, 
But ultimately, horses were part of the guns, germs, and steel here that successfully delivered a colonial outcome to European folks. That narrative has made a steamroll over the uniqueness of and the contributions and the innovations that have come out of Indian country. When we actually take a zoomed out look at that relationship with horses and we look at some of the new findings that we're looking at archaeologically, it shows us that that relationship was, in many ways, the integration of that technology and the things that came out of it were self-nominated. Folks were making new choices, developing new relationships in this really creative and kind of unique way. The things that came out of indigenous relationships with horses were, even if we're taking a purely technological view, they were different. There were new ways to raise a horse, new ways to train a horse. There's new ways to control a horse or use them in combat or battle, right? All those are things that folks have known for a long time. They tend to not totally get their fair share in the historical narrative that we tell. I mean, we're so used to their presence in our society that they've become almost quaintly familiar and not necessarily the world-changing technology that they certainly once were. The European colonization that you're talking about here, the arrival of the Spanish in what is today Mexico, is kind of part one. That's the opening of this theory that Cortez arrives in 1519, the horses come with him, and this is the first introduction of these tamed beasts of burden that can be used in amazing ways. The second piece is something new to me that I learned only by preparing for this interview, the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. This is something that happens in the southwest of the continent here. It was always assumed that this is when horses were stolen from the Spanish. Talk to me about this event. Spanish colonial activities sort of extended northwards as far as what is today New Mexico and perhaps a little bit beyond, beginning in a pretty formal way around 1600. And there are all across, we might call New Spain, there's a lot of ink spilled about control, Spanish control over horses. So there were laws on the books which said native folks are forbidden to have the horse. And understandably, if you just took a look at the documents, it would be pretty reasonable to infer that even though the Spanish showed up in a very permanent way, that they were able to pretty much maintain control over horses. And this event of 1680 sort of brought an end to whatever control Spanish folks had, at least temporarily, right? It was a uprising of subjugated Pueblo folks that expelled formal Spanish presence from New Mexico for around a decade or so. And the idea, as the story goes, right, is that the Spanish are given the boot. It's like they finally have relinquished that control over their animals. That's the launch point for how horses made their way into native nations across the plains and the Rockies, because finally that tight-fisted Spanish control is out and the horse is free to distribute from that platform. So that theory says that at that point, 1680, just before the 1700s begin, the horses are suddenly distributed around the country and all those tribes that eventually profit from their presence, which is far, far away, a thousand miles away, very expediently get their horses and begin to train them and understand them and integrate them. That's a very, very fast timeline. It is. And I don't think fast timelines should necessarily surprise us when we're talking about horses. Folks have quickly and immediately recognize the utility of horses. And it's been sometimes shocking the speed in which they can spread and disseminate into cultures that are interested. The difference in that story, though, is you know who was in control. And 
in story number one, it's not that surprising that horses spread fast, but it's only after Spanish sort of relinquished that control. And our archaeological research tried to sort of poke into this story a little bit because the truth is it doesn't really line up with a lot of indigenous perspectives on when and how and where they encountered the horse. So, for example, one of the greatest horse nations in human history, right, human story, would be the Comanche. And I don't think anybody would dispute that. But folks like me, Euro-American guys from the outside looking in, have looked at these two data points and said, hey, we know by the 1700s there were Comanche folks all across the southern plains, and they clearly had this interest in horses. They were trading horses. They were moving around. They came from the Rockies. They came from half a continent away. And the idea has always been, well, it was the desire to get those horses that pulled them down. And the Comanche folks that we talking to and working with on this project, their stories say we had the horse and we have words for horses that mean different things. And it was that story that we found conflicting between the archaeological and the historic records. We poked into it from the scientific end, and we found that pretty much across the western U.S., from Idaho to Wyoming to Kansas, we were finding evidence that horses were integrated into native societies across the plains as early as 1600 or so, perhaps even earlier. So our evidence that we have here suggests that the horses that show up at this time are of Spanish or Iberian ancestry. So that would suggest that they've spread northwards out of Spanish Mexico or, or wherever it was, but that the timeline there of who was in control when that happened was wrong. So we're moving that timeline, we're backing it up, let's say a century or more, to give these findings that you have the space that they need, historically speaking. The key to this is that we are no longer attributing it necessarily to a slow build, but rather they had a lot more time to gear up with this. And a lot more evidence supports that. Yeah, I think the archaeology is showing us is that beyond the first batch of horses off the boat in Mexico, probably there was a lot less rigorous control over where horses were and who controlled them beginning in that earliest stages of the story. And honestly, we hypothesize, it's a little speculative, but in the paper we hypothesize it may have even been indigenous folks in northern Mexico that first brought horses into what is today the U.S. and the Southern Plains. And for some folks, that story might be centuries older than you would suggest if you were just looking at the history books, right? And I think that helps us kind of reorient how we think about the story of people and horses in the Western U.S. For many folks, it's older than we've been giving it credit for. That should shift the way we think about it a little bit. Not only that, but what I find delicious to consider is that if the prehistoric horse was already there with early man who are the ancestors of these Native American tribes we traditionally talk about, then those oral histories would have been passed down. Understanding and probably even pictures of those horses would have been transmitted down through the ages. And we're talking about thousands of years, perhaps. So that when the horses show up, <laughs> as if you know a reunion has happened here, that this species that was once with these same people is suddenly come home. So this is probably the most extraordinarily controversial piece of the paper here. Some of our tribal partners, Oglala, Lakota folks in particular, do have that story. They have a story of an earlier relationship with the horse. Now, 10,000 years is an extraordinary amount of time. 
And so some folks would look at that and say that horse must have persisted longer. Our study doesn't tackle that stuff. But what I would say is that our research is showing that there is truth encoded in those oral traditions. And if we work collaboratively with scientists, whether those scientists are Euro-American or native scientists or both, sometimes we can tease out what those truths are and use that collaborative perspective to make our science better. And so I think it's important we stay curious about this sort of things. I'm not here to tell you how feasible it is for the mechanics of oral traditions to be passed on. All I know is that, you know, working with tribes on these perspectives gives us a new lens to look at the archaeological stuff and uncover aspects of the story that we might have missed because we weren't considering those ideas. I don't think I've read an article in Science Magazine that was not more of a synthesis of different kinds of disciplines as I read here. You know, it's a really interesting marriage of different ways of thinking scientifically and sociologically, not to mention historically, through this whole problem. And the fascinating aspect of it is it's pinned to something so familiar to us in the modern age, and yet now we're thinking about it so differently. It's a bit of the history told by the victors story in a way, because the proud story of the horse is precious to colonial truths. You know, we've brought this great civilization to these shores and not only Christianized, but also gave technology to these people. This completely flies in the face of that. It does. And I think the sad fact of history and archaeology, for, you know, those of us who love it, it's sometimes a little hesitant to admit that part of the genesis of our discipline has been to kind of justify our presence here. And if we really want the truth, now in the 21st century, we're going to have to work kind of hard to unpack that and tease that out a little bit. Yeah, it, sometimes it might be necessary when we make a museum exhibit or when we teach a class, we're not just showing pictures of cowboys or when we talk about horses that we add some other pieces of that story into the things that we're teaching the public and teaching kids. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it's part of telling a good story. I totally agree. I think this whole calling this political correctness or any kind of way of shading this is so wrong because it's very exciting to get this information that fills in gaps. It's a really important factor to realize that those images, cliche though they are in the movies, of these barebacked riding Native American warriors, well, they were incredible with their horses. Where did that horsemanship come from? It came from training and taming these horses and understanding how to work the horse. That takes a long time culturally to get right. So this is a story that addresses that factor and kind of fills in the gap there. It's a really interesting study. This is all very new stuff. I just want to really alert people to this. I looked through an article that was just published in Science Magazine. It's a really exciting new study that's all a correction of a misunderstanding not only of the origins of the horse in the world, but also of its arrival and distribution among these peoples, that the horse's arrival in the new world was more of a homecoming than an introduction. It's fundamental stuff and something that an archaeozoologist would be passionate about. You're the first one I've ever talked to in my life. Well, you know, we are a rare species, you know, there's not a lot of us out there. So <laughs> you, you popped up in the middle of Pangea and distributed yourselves around the world. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. William Taylor, for enlightening us to this interesting. This is going to unfold more, isn't it? Yeah, you know, this is just a starting point. And luckily enough for me, this is my job. So I'll keep doing this stuff as long as I can and asking new questions and excited to see where the story takes us. We look forward to the best-selling book yet to come. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of American History Hit. I hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to like, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll see you next time. This podcast includes music from Epidemic Sound. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Thank you for listening to this episode of American History Hit. Please follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us, and you'll be doing us a big favor. Don't forget, you can also listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you'll also get your first three months for just $1 a month when you use code AmericanHistory at checkout.